As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. You know, we have our digital selves now that are separate from our physical selves. And they're kind of out there doing work for us, representing us. But if I can't care and feed that digital self in all of those places to the level that I want, I start to feel, I don't know, some sense of remorse, guilt, all that kind of stuff. And I just feel like that digital baggage ends up becoming emotional baggage for me. Welcome to Creative Elements a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. You know, I'm constantly reminded just how small the world really is. The whole quote unquote creator economy movement sometimes feels like it's already huge and there are so many creators out there already. How could I possibly break through? So many other spaces and industries, once you start peeling the onion back and looking a little bit deeper, it begins to feel much smaller. And once you start meeting people within that space, they reference each other, and you start hearing the same names come up over and over again. Well, as I've gotten deeper into the creator rabbit hole, there are a few names that come up time and time again, and one of those names is Corbett Barr. Corbett Barr is the creator of Fizzle, and Fizzle brings together articles, podcasts, courses, and a community forum into one membership. Which sounds familiar, right? All these things are pretty hot right now in 2021. We hear about them here on this show. But Corbett was way ahead of the curve, and he started Fizzle back in 2012. Now that we are coming up on nine years into Fizzle, 
the people that have been involved have changed several times because this journey that I talked about that people are on in terms of building a business, finding, you know, life as an independent creator usually goes one of two ways. Either people fizzle out, which is the reason we called it fizzle to begin with. Most business ideas end up kind of going nowhere. On the other hand, you have people who become quite successful and they no longer really need those early stage communities and education and so on. So there's there's turnover. You know, every every few years or so, it seems like we have a, a different crop of people in there. The things that we're teaching obviously change, the technologies, the platforms, and so on change over time. And then our own platform is changing. Actually, we're completely relaunching the user experience inside of Fizzle. So it definitely has had to change, but the basic formula is the same. You pay one low monthly price, you get access to hundreds of video training hours, live coaching, a community, and some other perks. And by being around for the last nine years, Fizzle has impacted so many creators and entrepreneurs that I admire. Those people Corbett mentioned who became so successful, they will frequently credit Corbett Barr and Fizzle with helping them get started, whether it was pure inspiration or just the tactical push that they really needed. Corbett has been self-employed on the internet since 2005, earning a living from blogging, podcasting, online courses, memberships, SaaS, and more. He's bootstrapped, freelanced, consulted, and raised venture capital. Basically, he spent time trying every model out there. And Fizzle itself is built using a SaaS community platform called Palapa that Corbett built himself. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic when I say this, but from where I'm sitting, Corbett has quietly been one of the most influential and inspirational creators in the creator economy. But having been immersed in the online world for so long, Corbett has started to feel an emotional toll from all the projects he's built in all the places where his digital footprint exists. So he started down a path of just deleting that footprint and doing what he calls a digital reboot. A digital reboot for me really means reconsidering all the commitments that I have and whether or not I want to continue those. Corbett wrote on his blog recently, quote, if you've seen my social media profiles lately, you may have noticed I deleted everything. I'm also going to be deleting many of my blog posts, side projects, videos, podcasts, and more soon. It's time for a clean sweep called a spring cleaning or maybe a midlife crisis, I'm starting over in a way. I'm going to consolidate my online life and define a new vision for my next decade on the internet. After 500 plus blog posts, 400 plus podcast episodes, 30,000 plus Fizzle members, and millions of visitors across a half dozen websites, this is overdue, end quote. So in this episode, we talk about what brought Corbett into the nascent world of digital creators in 2005, the evolution of Fizzle, cultivating community, and why a digital reboot is a step we may all want to consider. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. I haven't deleted my accounts yet. And let me know that you're listening. Take a screenshot, tag me. I'd love to share it. But now let's talk with Corbett. I had always felt like there was going to be entrepreneurship in my future, but I never knew when. And I I felt like if I went through my entire career and, and never saw if I had what it took to actually be independent, to be self-supportive, to build a business from scratch, that I wouldn't really be satisfied. So in 2005, it kind of caught me off guard. My wife and I had just moved to San Francisco. She was going to grad school there. 
And I was just reconnecting with a bunch of old colleagues and, you know, kind of, Hey, I'm, I'm new to town. Like let's get coffee or whatever. And I connected with someone that I hadn't talked to in quite a while. And it turns out that he was starting a new company. And he asked if I was interested, if I, if I wanted to be a co-founder and it, it kind of just, the opportunity presented itself and we started having conversations. And then next thing I know, you know, a couple of months later, we were jumping in with both feet. I mentioned, you know, that I didn't just quit my job. I was lucky enough at the time to be working for a company. I was a, a consultant to Fortune 500 companies. And I, I was working for a consulting firm that was a little bit more focused on lifestyle. And they actually encouraged people to try different things, to explore different things in their career. And when I approached them with this idea of, hey, you know, I might want to go half time for a little while so that I can scratch this startup itch and see where it goes. They were totally fine with that. And, and for me, that was a really great way to get my feet wet because, you know, something else that we can, we can jump into is just the, the emotional roller coaster that you go on when you are an entrepreneur and watching your savings dwindle and what that does to your psyche. And, and for me, it had a really strong effect. So it was good that I, I had some time where I was still earning to be able to save more money and kind of see where that went. Yeah, something that I think would be interesting to explore here, given that that was about 2005, I think we underestimate how different things are 16 years later now than they were because Twitter maybe might have like been in production at that point, probably not. Like the world's very different for what it looks like to go independent then because people weren't sharing as much of it and the paths weren't as obvious. So what were the what were the other paths of entrepreneurship that you might have been aware of besides kind of the Silicon Valley startup route? I wasn't super aware of other paths of entrepreneurship aside from the only direct experience I had with someone who ran a business or was an entrepreneur was the guy that I worked for in high school who owned like three gas stations in town. That was like my, my big example. And when I thought about entrepreneurship, I guess my fascination with it mostly came from the first dot-com bubble around 1999, 2000, 2001. And I actually started working for a company, a consulting firm, because I had an office in San Francisco and I was really drawn to that idea of Silicon Valley. It took me five years to actually try something there. But basically in 2005, everything, San Francisco was coming out of the ashes of the previous dot-com boom. So most of the examples of startups were venture capital backed. And there was that whole infrastructure. There was no real social media at the time. Blogging was nascent. Podcasting, I think, was a concept, but you know, it wasn't like something that anybody really knew about. I think YouTube just came out in that year. So things were a lot different. And I didn't know that you could just you know, or maybe it wasn't even all that possible to be an independent creator like we talk right. about now. So at the time, really, the only option that I saw was jumping in and trying to raise venture capital and and build a, a quote unquote traditional startup. So 2005, we in 2006, we ended up raising venture capital and we built an office, hired 10 employees, built software, had a good number of users. And then in the financial collapse of 2008, it was really hard to raise money again. And this is something that I'm starting to see in the rearview mirror is this 
boom and bust cycle of business, which is really interesting. And uh, I think a lot of younger folks don't necessarily expect that to happen, even though it very well could, but it's impossible to predict. And so we were caught in a bad position, couldn't raise money. I took a sabbatical in early 2009 to Mexico with my wife. And really it was just a chance to hit the reset button and take a pause instead of jumping into the next thing. And we had always kind of romanticized the idea of getting to know Mexico a little bit better. So we drove down here, which is actually where I am right now. We've come back every year since then. I I think I thought that I would come up with another startup idea, but this time maybe pay more attention to how I built it because in, in the first iteration, not only did it fail, but also it was just a tremendous pressure cooker of stress, having employees, board of directors, venture capitalists, advisors, a co-founder, and an office to go to every day. I felt like I had less control over my life than I did when I was working in the corporate world. So I thought I would just focus on how I would build the business with less stress and more control. But when we were down in Mexico on the sabbatical, I just started meeting a lot of people who had figured out ways to make their careers work around their lives instead of the other way around. And there were a few people who were technologically inclined. Like I met a couple of software developer types who were able to kind of work remotely from anywhere. And that was revolutionary. But really, I just met a lot of people who more like had traditional careers, like nurses and house builders and people like that who just kind of said, I'm not going to delay my life to retirement. I would rather spend several months in Mexico and figure out a way to make my career support that. And they did, you know, they, they found some flexibility there. So I started a blog to tell those stories, to tell our story about the sabbatical and to ask questions out loud of myself and anyone who is willing to listen about the nature of career and life and why the two were so at odds seemingly so much of the time and and you know what what would it take to live a life that you want to now and build your ideal lifestyle corbett is hitting on an idea here that i think about a lot this idea that sometimes career and life feel at odds sometimes i wonder if my priorities are all mixed up and if i'm actually taking the long way around here's a quick story of a fisherman that makes my point An investment banker was at a pier off a small coastal village when a small boat with just one fisherman docked. Inside the small boat were several large yellowfin tuna. The banker complimented the fisherman on the quality of his fish and asked how long it took to catch them. Only a little while, said the fisherman. The banker then asked why he didn't stay out longer and catch more fish. The fisherman said he had enough to support his family, and the banker asked, but what do you do with the rest of your time? The fisherman said, I sleep late, fish a little, play with my children, take siestas with my wife, stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine and play guitar with my friends. I have a full and busy life. The banker scoffed. I'm a Harvard MBA and I could help you. You could spend more time fishing and with the proceeds, buy a bigger boat. With the proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats. Eventually you would have a fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your fish to a middleman, you would sell directly to the processor, eventually opening your own cannery. You would control the product, processing, and distribution. You would need to leave this small coastal fishing village and move to Mexico City, then LA, and eventually New York City, where you'll run your expanding enterprise. The fisherman asked, but how long will this all take? The banker replied, 15 to 20 years. But what then, asked the fisherman. The banker laughed and said, that's the best part. When the time is right, 
You would announce an IPO and sell your company's stock to the public and become very rich. You would make millions. Millions? Then what? said the fisherman. The banker said, then you would retire. Move to a small coastal fishing village where you would sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take siestas with your wife, stroll to the village in the evenings where you could sip wine and play your guitar with your friends. I think about this story all of the time. Are we taking the 15 to 20 year path to a destination that we could arrive at today? So I asked Corbett, once he had this experience on sabbatical, if he continued to take regular sabbaticals. I would say no, actually. That sabbatical in 2009 was really a one-time event where I took six, actually ended up being more like eight or nine months to really consider things and think about what I wanted to do next. Since then, it's really been one continuous stream of projects. And, you know, of course, I I take a, a week of vacation here and there, and I have enormous flexibility. And we live in different countries and travel quite a bit. We love, my wife and I have spent time in Spain and Europe and, and returned to Mexico almost every winter. So all of that's great, but my work pretty much follows me everywhere. And I haven't taken more than a couple of weeks of time off since that sabbatical. How do you feel about that? Um, so one of the things that caused me to decide to do this digital reboot that I'm going through now is the realization that when you work in a company or you work in a sort of traditional career, a lot of times when you move from one job to the next, there's actually a really clean break between your responsibilities at the old job and what you're about to take on at the new job. And that's usually a good time to take vacation. Although, of course, you know, companies try to squeeze you to come in as soon as possible, but I think they're smart to actually let you take some time off. And so whether you take a week off or, or several weeks off in between jobs, you get a clean break there. And then also there's this ramp up period where you still kind of feel like a kid in the summer between grades. In the world that we live in now, for us who are, you know, independent creators, a lot of us kind of have this constant connection to our work and the work really bleeds from one project to the next. Sure, we might be creating something new, new software, a new course or something like that, and that's a new project, but there's this ongoing thread constantly of everything that we've produced and we might have a podcast or a blog or an email list or social media or whatever that we kind of keep maintaining in the background at all times and we don't really get a clean break from it. So that was one of the things that that led me to start to clean up my digital house, the the baggage that I started to feel like I had out there just so that I could wipe the slate clean and and give me some mental space to reimagine what might be possible. This is such a struggle. It, I totally underestimated the maintenance cost of projects and new commitments because you start to get invested in the thing. A, a very concrete example. I started a LinkedIn newsletter back in March of last year. It's about a year old. And it was to myself an experiment at the time. And I didn't have clear markers of success, but it seemed to be performing better than I expected as far as subscribers to the newsletter. But I haven't necessarily seen a second order result from that. And every week, it's a strain on Wednesdays. Right now, I have a draft open that I feel like I need to complete. And I don't really want to. And it's a strain of, well, do I not fulfill my promise this week? Do I quit the whole thing altogether? So I totally feel you on this. After a quick break, Corbett and I dig into his recent digital reboot right after this. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. 
My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I wanna tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash creator. Welcome back to my conversation with Corbett Barr. Before the break, Corbett mentioned that as an employee, you often have clean breaks between jobs. You leave a job and you can totally leave behind what you were previously focused on and move on to a new job and a new task at hand. But as creators, He says we don't have that same clean break. And when you're making your own projects, they can persist and take up a lot of our mental bandwidth. When you start working for yourself, you feel like, oh my God, there's so many opportunities out there and I just need to take advantage of all of them. But as you start layering on responsibilities, commitments, revenue streams, things that you need to maintain, you start to realize that really the magic is in being selective about what you take on because there are really only very few things that each of us can do on a regular basis. And, you know, I I tend to commit to trying to just do a couple of important things every day. And uh, I think in the beginning you feel like, oh, I'm going to accomplish 10 things today. And it just doesn't happen that way. So you're absolutely right. 
in terms of commitments, I, I think it's natural for us to say yes to more things than we say no to. And over time, we just end up feeling like we're pulled in a whole lot of different directions. And last year, when I had been talking to some friends, I, I actually was just catching up with a friend of mine and um, Vanessa Van Edwards. She's amazing. She and I were catching up and she asked about how I was doing. And I said, you know, it, it, everything's fine, but I still, I feel pulled in a lot of different directions. I don't really feel like I have time to take on anything new. And she said, you know, you've been saying that same thing for at least a couple of years now. And I realized it, it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Like I was a broken record and I wasn't, I was kind of like waiting for the universe to make something happen for me. But instead I finally realized like, I'm the only one that's going to make something happen for me. And that's going to mean I have to clean some things off of my plate so that I can make room for doing something else or so that I can do a couple of things really well instead of constantly feeling this struggle of being pulled in a lot of different directions. I love the creator economy. I love, you know, the movement that's happening right now. And people are seeing so much opportunity on social media, on Twitch, on uh, Substack and all of these different things. But most of those become a hamster wheel. And, you know, if, if you've known any YouTubers, you know that it's not a question of if, but when they're going to burn out. And I imagine the same thing is true for people who are streaming or writing a newsletter. And I love the heroic effort that it takes to get a new project off the ground. And, you know, that obsession that you get for several months building something new, but maintaining something for the long haul can be quite a slog. And you have to be really careful about that. You know, I think if, if you were able to divide your week into 50% of the time is for that one-off effort, that project-based heroic effort, and then the other 50% of the time is for maintaining the things that you've already built, that'd probably be a good balance. I tend to kind of be all or nothing. And when I get obsessed with a project, I jump into it and I almost drop the ball on some of the other stuff, right? And and consistency is so important in blogging and podcasting and everything else. So, you know, when when at Fizzle, when we've advised people on starting podcasts or projects like that, we usually encourage people just to think of their first effort as a season. Like, let's just produce 20 episodes and see what that's like, and then take a pause and decide if it's worth recommitting to. But so many times when we start something, we don't think about when that pause is going to come, when we're going to allow ourselves to have some time off, how we're going to schedule things so that it's not a week, week in, week out kind of commitment. And that's really, for most creators, the secret is in being able to show up every week and have that longevity. You said something that called out to me there about, we often say yes to things more than we say no. And I think it's even more like quiet and dangerous than that, because I think I say no a lot, mm -hmm. but every yes is so much more impactful than every no, because yes comes with a huge commitment most of the time. So even if you say no three out of four times, That's that true. one yes could be such a huge commitment. And we don't think about that because this example of the LinkedIn newsletter, because I didn't set hard bounds of if this is not this by then, I'm not going to do it to reconnect with myself and see, is this something I'm going to continue doing? It's just this constant strain on me that's even taking mental bandwidth away from things. Just this realization of that commitment has made me appreciate so much people who come from the traditional journalism world where 
They're expected to turn out an oh article every day or multiple articles every day. Several a day. <laughs> I mean, people are really superhuman, the, the, the folks that can do that. I um, am friends with Leo Babauta, who runs Zen Habits, and we both lived in San Francisco for quite a while and spent some time co-working and, and stuff like that. And, and once we sat down at a coffee shop and you know asked each other, what are you working on today? And I was about to... I don't know, check email or something. And, and Leo said he was going to write an article. And I knew that Leo came from a journalism background. He actually had worked for the newspaper in Guam and he comes from his, his family actually had worked at the newspaper for a long time. He sat down and basically went silent for 15 or 20 minutes and then was done with, with an entire article, like a thousand word article. And I was like, what, you know, you're done already? And he said, yeah, he, he, he basically writes a draft from start to finish, hits publish, and then goes back and edits it so that he doesn't have a choice to let it sit on the shelf or second guess himself or whatever. And that just that skill of being able to publish something so quickly, I think when you see people running Substack newsletters really successfully, the ones who can do it for a long time and show up, some people show up every day and write a newsletter, which is insane. But even weekly, I think a lot of those people have this edge of having worked in a newsroom and they've gotten really, really good at just showing up and forcing themselves, realizing that the most important thing you can do is to actually publish and all the other stuff has to come second. But for those of us that don't come from that background of creating content regularly, a lot of times, you know, we, we push the, the production to the end of the day and that's when you get yourself in trouble. In college and through internships, I studied journalism for a while. And what it taught me was a huge respect for deadlines because it's rooted in this world of newspapers. And if you didn't get the, the content to the editor, there was literally no chance for it to run that day. And then there was a space in the paper that was empty and it was a bad time. So there was just so much pressure on deadlines. And what you learn is exactly what you're saying. The actual power is in hitting publish and then using your fear of failure to force you to go and edit and make it really great. But like first and foremost, something has to get published. So it's on you whether it's going to be good or not, but it needs to get published and it's going to happen. What I wonder if there's a way to set up your email marketing service to send an email no matter what at a certain <laughs> time, almost like the paper is being published and therefore you have to have something out there. And, and if you don't, then a blank newsletter goes out and you look like that's the new way unprepared. That's the next Substack right there. Yeah, exactly. We started to get a little bit ahead of ourselves here, and I wanted to go back to get a better understanding of how Corbett went from startup founder to online creator before this digital reboot. Yeah. So in 2009, there were some concepts out there that people were starting to write about a lot. A lot of it was, I think, inspired by Tim Ferriss and the four hour work week which I always felt was a little disingenuous to some degree, some of the concepts that he talked about, but it did start this groundswell of interest in, you know, how do I live a great lifestyle while running a business? People started talking about location independence, digital nomading was really nascent at the time. And I just started exploring those things and connecting with other people who are writing about those topics. And I'm so thankful for that energy and that I was able to kind of attach myself to it because whenever you can find language, common language that people are looking for, it just makes it so easy for people to discover you versus you trying to figure out what people are, are talking about. And it's kind of a, 
a basic level marketing strategy just to understand the language that people are using. And I did that on my blog, started talking about lifestyle design and so on. And that led me to realize, first of all, that building an audience was this really powerful thing. And it was early because, again, social media was fairly new, blogging was fairly new and so on. But I started sensing the power of it because up until then, I had always thought that an entrepreneur was someone who built a product and then went and looked for an audience who would want it. And here I was starting to realize that maybe it could be the other way around. And now I think, of course, you know, that that's fairly common. In fact, people just talk about monetizing their audience, like as a regular turn of phrase now. So I started building an audience and that's when eBooks were really popular. You know, we're talking about paid newsletters now. We were talking about what, like, you know, online courses before. Well, before all that, eBooks were the thing. And basically it was a book on a specific topic, trying to help someone accomplish something that you could sell to fewer people at a slightly higher price point than a regular print book. So I started thinking about writing eBooks. I actually wrote a couple of eBooks that I published for free, following in the footsteps of Chris Gillibo. Chris had written a couple that really impacted me, and I decided to do the same thing, writing about what I called the new economy at the time, but really I, I think I was hitting on the creator economy, this idea that we could all be independent publishers. And I also wrote one about the success that I had in affiliate marketing and in building my first online course. And that really just kind of led me down the path of trying to figure out different ways to grow an audience and different ways to turn that audience into revenue. And since then, I've had to explore pretty much all the different mechanisms, you know, from online courses to freelancing to coaching to affiliate marketing and everything in between, supported by, of course, podcasting, blogging, email newsletters, all of that. And at some point, I started to feel like I had a lot of little independent projects out there, online courses and, and books and coaching programs and things like that. And I decided to bring them all under one roof where people could access all of the things that I had put out there for one monthly price, realizing that the journey that I'm trying to help people go through, this journey of entrepreneurship, is really a, a fairly long journey. And it requires constant checking in, supporting people, helping them get unstuck, and so on. And so that, that monthly model of people paying to access materials, courses, education that I put out, combined with coaching and being supported by other people who are doing the same thing, just made sense. So that's how Fizzle came about in 2012. Even in 2021, that model is still pretty nascent. Like it's starting to take off now that like community tools are a little bit more available and full featured. But in 2012, when you're starting this, you're making courses, you're putting it under one roof, you're, you're having a subscription that people pay for online for support and community that had to seem pretty weird to most things around you. Like what were you using as inspiration or how'd you even land on this line of thought? Well... There were some, I would say, or around the same time, the explosion in services helping people learn how to code. I think that was around 2012, 13. So there were some of those. Treehouse by Ryan Carson is built in Portland. We got to know Ryan. So that was definitely an inspiration. 
lynda.com was an inspiration. And if you've heard of Linda's story, there's a literal person named Linda. They started out creating, I think it was like CD-ROMs, like even before you could access courses online. And then they transitioned to online and they were selling a tremendous library of education for one low monthly price. And then they sold to LinkedIn for billions of dollars in the past couple of years. And now that's LinkedIn learning, which a lot of people are familiar with. So I think there were some out there. And, you know, the thing that I always try to remember is that there were people doing this. This is always true. There were always people who were early doing something and then they kind of get forgotten about as like people think that, you know, the creator economy was just invented yet invented yesterday. And we talk about what we were doing in 2012 or whatever. Well, when I got started, I was thinking about what Brian Clark was doing at Copyblogger in 2006 and seven, right? And if you ask Brian what his inspiration was, he would tell you, well, there were internet marketers before that even. And then before that, there were people doing paid physical newsletters and selling things, you know, through direct mail and direct advertising. Cutting in here to say back on episode 33 of the show, I did talk to Brian Clark about his inspiration back in 2005. And lo and behold, Corbett is right. So long story short, I was successful, but not happy. And I did another walk away kind of thing like I did when I quit the, the law firm job and said, I want to, you know, I want to operate solely online. I don't want to do these, you know, digital real world hybrids anymore. I don't care if I make a ton of money. I just want to make a living and be happy. I basically looked around. It's 2005. And blogging is beginning to grow out of its more idealistic phase and, and start becoming commercial stuff. Darren Rouse's uh, pro blogger was trying to teach people how to make a living from blogging. There were some other sites that did the same thing. And I was like, hey, you know, I can contribute to this conversation uh, because I've been using content and email marketing, you know, and in essence, building audiences of prospects in order to build these businesses. So Copyblogger, believe it or not, was the first true blog I ever started. I dabbled mm -hmm. in it several times, you know, just, you know, stuff that I thought was interesting because blogging was really supposed to be journaling to a certain degree. You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. really like what it turned into. But with Copyblogger, even though it was my first official blog, I wanted a magazine more than I wanted a blog. And that's what I did differently. So there's always some inspiration there, whether it's as polished or current or hip as things are today. There definitely was something. And, and for me, there was a lot of internet marketers, which was kind of a dirty term. And I definitely didn't want to be associated with that. In fact, our tagline at Fizzle to begin with was honest online business training because there was so much dishonesty out there. And I think this creator economy movement has had to prove itself for quite a while to gain sort of mainstream acceptance. And now people understand, oh yeah, there's, you know, individuals producing videos and content and so on. So, you know, I'm sure there was plenty of inspiration. It may seem like it was early then. And, and that's the interesting thing, right? To, to see how long these things can take. It's almost like slowly, 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 and then all at once. And now everyone's talking about it. When we come back, Corbett and I talk about what Fizzle has taught him about cultivating community and how you and I can start our own digital reboot. So stick around and we'll be right back. 
This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back. As has been a recent trend on this show, I couldn't help but spend some time talking to Corbett about online community. The Fizzle community has been around since 2012, as Corbett mentioned, and it just comes up so often in conversations with creators that I look up to. So for that kind of staying power, especially with entrepreneurs who are so naturally busy and inclined to focus on their business, not the community, I knew that there must be something that Corbett could teach me about fostering community online. Well, for any community, regardless of the kinds of people involved, I think the first thing that you have to realize is that it's not going to happen magically. You as the community owner, the person that wants to cultivate the, this thing, you need to think about it like throwing a party for a bunch of people who don't really know each other very well and how awkward that is and how hard you have to work to introduce people. You know, I've, I've seen people who are really good at this in person to say, hey, Jay, you know, you should meet my friend Jackie. She does such and such. And, and I know you've done that before too. Like you two should talk. And then you literally just put people together at a party and, and have them start a conversation. You hope that they'll get to know each other. And then the next time you have a party, there are more of those connections. A lot of times what I see is people feel like they've heard that community is important they understand that it can be a real benefit to their business and they want it to be a part of an online course or something that they launch, but they, they treat it like an afterthought. They think people are coming for the education. They're here to see me. So they're going to want to hang out in the community and interact with me or whatever, but that's not enough. First of all, you probably can't have one-on-one -on -one conversations with everyone. You have to connect all those people together. But two, there's this startup process of, creating those connections for people and helping them get to know each other so that it does become a community as opposed to a hub and spoke model where you're the center of it. You really want it to be connected directly between all the people, but you have to engineer that. You have to be the, the consummate party host and, you, and, and do that. And then eventually it can take on some of its own. But also community is not just an online forum. A lot of times people think that, you know, when you say community, you almost think of 
Slack or Facebook or, or wherever you're going to host this thing. But in reality, a community is just the conversations that are happening and connections that are happening between people, regardless of where they happen. And in order to really make connections, you need more opportunities than just in a forum. You need to get people together on video calls, audio chats, all that kind of stuff where they can get to know each other more deeply than they can just over text conversations. Love that. It's been it's been a recent trend on the show to talk about this. One, because it's where I spend most of my time lately, but two, because it is a pretty hot topic in the world of creators. But I find that most people do treat it like an afterthought and they're not willing to invest the time and energy up front to help make those connections. I love likening digital community to physical community and physical spaces because it makes you get it even more. And you start to realize, oh, it's actually harder to do it online because in a physical space, people are looking at each other and sitting near each other. And someone's probably going to go first and say something. And online, they can just click the red X and be gone forever and no one even notices. So it, it, it just takes a lot more effort, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Now that we've gotten a little bit of the history, I want to kind of return to now where you are today in two ways. You mentioned these boom and bust cycles of business and the economy, but you also seem to have kind of a boom and bust cycle playing out through your own projects and, and things that you're investing time and energy into. So talk to me about this digital reboot that you're doing right now and what that conversation in Vanessa spurred in you and how you're going about it. This was a, an incredibly freeing feeling for me to think that just because I've been doing something for years doesn't mean that I need to continue doing it. And just because I signed up for X, Y, and Z social media accounts or whatever doesn't mean that I necessarily have to continue being there. There's this, you know, we, we can talk about social media and the, the engineering that goes on behind it, the manipulation and so on, right? They, they are very good, those platforms at making us feel like we're going to miss out if we leave them or if we're not there for some reason. But after having cleaned up my own house and deleting my, all of my social media posts, every single one of them, closing a lot of accounts, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, every Facebook product, including WhatsApp and so on, I've just really narrowed the focus down. I decided that I didn't want to leave social media entirely, and I'm still on Twitter. That's the only platform that I'm really on right now. And there's no particular reason for that. I don't think that Twitter is necessarily better than other places. It just resonated more with me and happens to have connections to more of the people that I care about, not necessarily the people that might become customers, but the people who I have business relationships with and, and friendships with. So I pared down all of that. I deleted a lot of old videos, blog posts, podcasts, really just thinned everything down to get to the signal and get rid of a lot of the noise. And one thing that has become apparent is that this doesn't happen like overnight. It's not like you decide hey, I'm going to hit the reset button and you push a button and it's all done because a lot of these places don't make it easy for you to leave or to clean up, right? There's a lot of effort that you have to go through. And also, once you start, there, there, there is obvious low-hanging fruit that you can do away with because it's not bringing you much value. But then once you start to peel back the layers, you get to the parts of your life that are more valuable and you start to look at you know revenue streams and business projects and partnerships and things like that. And uh, those things take longer to decide about and also longer to unwind if, if that's the direction that you want to go. So here I am six months after I decided to do a digital reboot, still underway, but 
a lot of it, you know, I'd say it, it's sort of like there's a Pareto principle here in terms of the amount of content. I was able to remove 80% of it in 20% of the time. And now I'm down to the last 20%, but it's going to take me 80% of the time. How do you think about removal versus just rejection or like moving away from it? For example, I don't love Instagram, but I got 2,800 followers there. It almost causes me pain to think about deactivating that account because that feels like some sort of effort or thing that could be utilized. But I also see the benefit of just not worrying about Instagram at all. And it feels like I would only have that peace of mind if I completely deactivate it and made it a non-thing. Well, and there's more to the decision than that for me. A big part of the decision is this tension that I think we're feeling right now between the open web and walled gardens. And uh, Facebook and others do their best to try to create these walled gardens where the internet experience for a lot of people really becomes Facebook. You know, you've probably heard about the way they rolled out this Facebook basics product in Africa. And if you use quote unquote, the internet, it really is Facebook. So part of it is my concern about the business practices of big tech and Instagram, unfortunately was bought by Facebook. I I hope that the founders of Instagram feel some regret. I know that the founders of WhatsApp feel some regret selling to Facebook, but it's impossible to to turn down billions of dollars, obviously. And I, I don't necessarily fault them for that, but I, I wish that Instagram was its own platform because it's, it's, it's a, a great place. For me, though, I just feel like when there are a lot of different places out there that I'm represented, you know, we have our digital selves now that are separate from our physical selves, and they're kind of out there doing work for us, representing us. But if I can't care and feed that digital self in all of those places to the level that I want, I start to feel, I don't know, some sense of remorse, guilt, all that kind of stuff. And I just feel like that digital baggage ends up becoming emotional baggage for me. It also ends up being a little bit of a time suck. Even if you say, I'm not going to spend time on Instagram, you still check on on it once in a while. You still get down that rabbit hole of Instagram you still, you know, maybe update your profile, whatever. And you're kind of going through the motions there, even though I think if you looked at your business results and at where you derive pleasure in your life and in your creative life, it may not really contribute much at all. So for me, I had been doing exactly what you're talking about, just kind of leaving things out there for a long time and feeling guilty about it and turning them off entirely just opened up this whole new sense of freedom for me. Is there a level of documentation or rigor to this? Like, did you do an audit of writing down all the things you're aware of so you can systematically check them off? Or is it kind of like, as they come, you take note of it and you decide what you want to do with it? In terms of uh, like a, a social media presence or... Social media platforms that you're on, or even just like, I know you cleaned up a ton of blog posts on your your website too. Did yeah. you go through a list and say like, here are the ones I'm going to combine versus Axe, or did you yep. just kind of blanket slate say goodbye? Yeah. So on my personal site, I deleted probably 95% or so of the blog posts that I had out there. And, and these are things going back all the way to 2009. And I did a couple of things. First, I went into my analytics platform and I looked at the which posts are most popular. And for the most popular posts, I examined each one, like the top 20 or so. And you'll find anyone who's been blogging for a long time probably has 10 or 20 posts that bring in the lion's share of traffic. So I looked at those, evaluated them, 
ask myself if they were relevant, if they served a purpose, and if the traffic that was coming in might be useful to me at some point in the future. Kept some of those. And then I also just looked through the entire list of archives and kept several posts that I felt were important just because of what they said, regardless of if they were popular. And then that allowed me to to really clean things up quite a bit. Did you create redirects for all of those so that you weren't like penalized by search? Um, yes and no. I mean, the redirects for most of those just end up going to my homepage because there's there's nothing for there's nothing for me to link to instead, which I guess is better than a 404 page, a, a not found page at least, maybe in the eyes of search traffic. Although, as you you mentioned before, we started recording. Uh, you had Matt Chivanisi on the show a while back. He and I talk a lot about. SEO and Brendan Hufford as well. I talk with him about SEO quite a bit. My approach to SEO is is really not so mechanical and strategic in terms of redirects and all that kind of stuff. I, I really just kind of pay attention to the quality of the content I'm writing and the relationships that I build with people and the search traffic comes naturally. I know you said this is still in progress. So talk to me about what it's done for you so far, this, this reboot effort and how that changes now the way that you approach new commitments or new projects. So my wife is a, an artist, a painter, and uh, while she was in grad school and, and since then, we've listened to a lot of artist talks. And there were at least two cases where we heard from artists who had a catastrophic studio fire. And in both of the cases, the artist said that it was actually a positive thing for them in the end, even though at the time it seemed incredibly painful, but it allowed them to wipe the slate clean and kind of reimagine the work that they wanted to do going forward. As I, as I mentioned, I felt this tremendous sense of freedom, just finally being able to like reconsider what I wanted to do. To do. I also had been in this nasty cycle of analysis paralysis where, as I said, I was stuck for a couple of years. I was kind of just going through the motions, keeping the lights on. And I finally realized that no one is going to make a decision for you. There's not going to be some like sign from the universe. You have to decide and with imperfect information, move forward. And and this is something that I knew, especially about entrepreneurship, because being an entrepreneur is all about getting comfortable with the unknown. And just kind of realizing that there are going to be a lot of things that you don't know. You don't know if you're going to be successful. You don't know if the customers are going to be there. You just have to operate with that imperfect information and move on. And I think when we're starting ventures, it's really easy to grasp that concept because here you are in your life, you want things to be different. And in order to do that, in order to become an entrepreneur, to leave your job and so on, you have to try a bunch of things and see what works. But after being an independent entrepreneur for 12 years and being an entrepreneur overall for 16 years now, I don't think I realized what this part of the playbook was supposed to look like because I had never been here before. Uh, I mean, before I became an entrepreneur, the longest I had ever stayed in a job was four and a half years or something. And here I am like over a decade into this. And I think it's easy to forget that in order to change your situation, you have to decide on a direction and start working towards it. So the digital reboot for me, in part, has just been about making some decisions, putting a stake in the ground and moving forward. I also think about, I'm, I'm not like a biologist by any means or anything, but I also think about the analogy some people make with 
plant life where for the plant to continue to grow the way that it needs to grow to be strong, sometimes you have to prune some branches yeah. and like prune things back. And in a lot of ways, it sounds like you're doing that with, with your work. And I think about that a lot because I got a pretty gnarly plant growing here and sometimes it feels like I could use some, some pruning. Is there anything else that somebody listening to this, who's thinking to themselves, okay, maybe it's time for me to reconsider everything that I have going on. Is there like a first step that you would recommend they take? Well, I would try to understand the difference between vanity metrics and meaningful metrics. Vanity metrics are things that make you feel good, but that don't necessarily actually contribute to progress or goals. So for example, 2,800 followers on Instagram is probably a vanity metric. It's not really contributing to your prosperity. And the same can be true of a lot of different things. I mean, we can delude ourselves, you know, we, we can look at our podcast download numbers or whatever and delude ourselves into thinking that those are meaningful. But in a lot of cases, we may just be feeling self-important about it. Or we may be feeling like, oh, I've, I've accomplished something. I, I remember going to parties in the early days of social media, uh, business-oriented parties, and having people walk up to you and introduce you and, and literally tell you how many Twitter followers they had in the course of like the first minute or two of conversation. What? As if that mattered. And we're talking about 2009, 2010, something like that. Oh, wow. As if that as if that mattered, and and if we looked those people up now, I think just that obsession with numbers that don't matter can lead you astray, and it's almost like having a bunch of you've, maybe you've heard the term yes men before. It's like if you surround yourself with a bunch of people who just kind of always say yes, like you're doing the right thing. They keep blowing smoke up your rear end, that you'll end up in a in a bad place because you're going to make a bunch of bad decisions. And I think if you follow those vanity metrics, the same thing can happen. So if you just understand that there's probably a lot of things in your life that you've committed to that's that are it's taking your valuable time, but it's probably not contributing back as much as you think it is. And just trying to see things through that lens to to if you're going to prune back, figuring out which of those branches are the important, strong, central branches and which ones are the superfluous ones. This was actually the first time that I had ever spoken with Corbett, but it felt like we connected so quickly, probably in large part due to just how long Corbett has been inspiring creators like me. This reboot idea is something that I just can't shake. I know there is some serious upside to pruning my digital commitments. In fact, since this interview took place, I did in fact stop publishing my LinkedIn newsletter. And I've thought about Instagram and Facebook too, but when the rubber hits the road, I just can't quite get myself to pull the trigger yet. But the seed has been planted, and I think it's a positive seedling to take root. I think we'll see more and more people following Corbett's lead and beginning to reboot their digital selves. Thanks to Corbett for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Ryan Steele for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.
a sonic universe.